Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Is that person a homeless person or is that my neighbor? <laughs> you know? Hi everyone, this is Bryce Merriman and you're listening to Homeland Lab, where we're exploring the intersection of homelessness and public space. In discussions about homelessness, I'm always interested in hearing from people who stray from their inherent tribal orthodoxies. Roger Valdez is certainly one of those people. Our wide-ranging conversation swings from people camping in parks to migrant housing, and name checks Jesus, Hayek, and Milton Friedman along the way. We began our conversation asking about what his organization, Smart Growth Seattle, does, and how he began writing about homelessness. I hope you enjoy. So Smart Growth Seattle was created um, a few, four or five years ago by a, a couple group of developers that were worried about small line development. We grew beyond that scope into micro-housing product and mid-rise and high-rise. And the, the, ba- the whole idea behind it was that if we're going to do growth management right and prevent sprawl in areas of habitat and open space and farmland, we needed to grow in our cities. And if we were going to grow in our cities, we needed to uh, have a, a strong and clear set of policies and land use code and rules and regulations that encouraged and incentivized um, the development of more housing product. So our, our philosophy became has and has grown over the years into being one of let's build more housing of all types, of all, of all different sorts of product um, in all parts of the city for all levels of income. So let's just turn on this, the, the spigot and let this let the housing market blow up and, and absorb all the demand that's out there. Um, and that takes a number of different forms. We advocate on the micro level for, you know, fighting back on infrastructure requirements that add cost to housing. We try to, um, we do a lot of pushing back because right now in this environment, there's a lot of efforts to attenuate the housing supply um, by well-intentioned people and by people that also just don't want any more housing. But so our job, a lot of it is pushing back. We also try to have some more forward-looking ideas about, you know, what sorts of things could we do to promote uh, more innovation, both on the financing side and on the uh, construction side and on the, you know, just broadly, you know, how do we improve the conversation about growth? Um, we don't get to do a lot of that. We, we end up doing a lot of hassling over the rules and regulations. Um, but that's kind of a nutshell. And so how does how does that mission begin to translate into some of your writing and thinking about homelessness? I look at, you know, I guess I my view about Homelessness, I guess, is a little bit complicated by the fact that in many respects, I think there's a difference between homelessness and being without shelter. And I think you can be homeless and be sheltered. 
right? Mm -hmm. You can be living somewhere on an interim basis, but it's not really your home, but you're, you're not on the street. I think there are people... Couch surfing might be an couch, example. Couch surfing. Um, I think uh, people who are, um, yeah, bouncing around a lot. I think there are people that sleep in a doorway that would say, this is, this is my home. The streets are my home. And, and I'm not making light of that or, or sort of being semantic about it. But I think people have a strong sense of home that is different than shelter and different than housing and different than housing units. And I think that those of us who are, who come from a standard issue perspective on housing, sometimes think of this as a, a unit issue or a construction issue, or this is what it's supposed to look like issue. And I think that that prevents us from seeing innovative solutions and ideas for meeting people where they're at um, and recognizing that not everybody just wants a unit. Um, some people need something that's transitional. Some people, so so we come to it, I think, from a place of saying, everybody who wants to be in the city should be in the city, and if they're sleeping in their car, if they're sleeping in an improvised shelter that they built themselves, if they want an apartment, a micro housing unit, a single family home, all of that's part of the mix. Uh, we need to provide for all of that. Um, and make it safe and make it secure and make it, uh, you know, accessible and affordable for whoever wants it. And I, I'm going to get really quickly into the weeds here. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, when you talk about safety and security, I think that that's one of the, the issues that you'll commonly hear is pushback. Um I interviewed a wonderful woman named Anitra Freeman mm -hmm. on one of our podcasts, and she said she she had experienced homelessness. She's very involved in the homeless community, and one of her pushbacks was, you know, back in the '30s, back during the Depression, we used to be able to build whatever we wanted, mm -hmm. and it was housing, it was home. Um, I think it checked some of those boxes that you just referred mm -hmm. to, and the reason why some of those things are no longer legal, no longer allowed to be built or um, are enforced out of existence is concerns about safety, mm -hmm. concerns mm -hmm. about people aren't supposed to live that way. Right. Um, talk to me about that issue. Yeah. And I mean, I, I come to this. Uh, so there's two, two responses to that. One is uh, I did a little analysis of about the earthquakes in Haiti and in Chile that happened uh, however long ago that was 10 years ago in Haiti the the earthquake was um, devastating wiped out you know lots and lots of built structures in in Chile um, it was the same level of, of seismic activity but the damage was a lot less was, was limited part of that was seismic code I mean, it was just rules and regulations about how you have to build things in an area with seismic activity. Um, we need those kinds of things. We need fire exits. We need, you know, we need to learn from the mistakes that others have made in the past, whether it's fire escapes, um, you know, getting in and out emergency equipment, whatever. There's a baseline of, of health and safety that needs to be built into the, our solutions to housing. But that has become a mechanism by which to exclude innovative solutions. 
And so the same arguments that are used against tents, improvised shelters, the, the encampments, are, were used against micro-housing, against small single-family houses. Um, it, and it was like, well, that's too small. Or people shouldn't have to live like that. Because there's a, an expectation that, that home and housing is a, either an apartment or a single-family home or something that looks like where I live. You know, I being the hypothetical I. Um, and, and so, the, you know, what ends up happening is, is that the building code becomes a kind of a, a class, a tool for class identification. And, and it, it's no longer just purely a health and safety measure or, or intervention. It becomes a litmus test for have you earned enough money to live in, quote unquote, real housing? And I think that that's um, uh, with the, the disappearance of SROs, with you know single room occupancy, single room occupancy um, and and the the, 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 the uh, uh, limitation on microhousing and small efficiency dwelling units and this fight you know we we sat in meetings with the uh, construction code advisory board which is the board that oversees the building code arguing about you know 36 inches here and 36 inches there and it all had to do with that's too small. And you were sort of like, too small for what? Well, it doesn't feel right to me for someone to live in 120 square feet. And it's like, you know, that's, that's, you're, you're eliminating a choice. If people don't choose not to buy that product, it, the, the price will come down and it won't get built anymore. But as long as it's safe and people can get in and out of it safely and it's got windows and a bathroom and a sink and a place to take a shower, um, and so I apply that same principle to um, the use of public space for shelter that's improvised because an individual says, I have, you know, I have a tent and I want to live in that tent and that works for me for right now. It's odd because the second thing I was thinking is it's funny how, how the police are now sort of positioned in our minds as being like, oh, there's people camped out over there. I'm calling 911 to get them, to get rid of them. Instead of the police sort of saying, how can I make sure those people are not victimized by criminals? In other words, I think that there's this kind of, um, I agree that there's been a criminalization or at least an effort to criminalize homelessness in a way that I think most people don't realize. one example was the uh, is the uh, the the banning of um, high octane booze in certain areas and these establishments of these uh, I forget what they're called uh, I, we, I don't know if we have them anymore but they they were areas where convenience stores were banned from selling high like alcohol enforcement zones yeah like something I can't remember this had an acronym but what's funny is that if if I want to sit on the street and drink a beer. I can do that on a on a patio that's permitted by the city of Seattle. And if there's a guy that's sitting in a, in a bus stop or underneath a telephone pole 10 feet away, that's illegal. And it, it's just sort of this arbitrary decision that if a guy goes and buys a beer and sits in a park and drinks it, there's that, that's, that's a, a scandal and the cops need to show up. Whereas if I do it in a patio at a at a bar, that's considered 
a fun time. And, and I think that that is the nature of the subtle distinction between the way we have criminalized, you know, and made it illegal to provide shelter and safety and just quality of life for people that are living in a different set of circumstance. Well, and it all, and that also strikes me as a, as a very American mm-hmm. response in many ways. I mean, there's so many places in the world where maybe they have smaller units and your private life is lived in public as much as it is right. in private. And I think that one of the, I forget who said it, but a very insightful comment of the problem that we have with our homeless community is that they're living their private lives out in public. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, the example that you just gave is but one example of that. It could be arguments. It could be, you know, marital strife. It could be whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but that there's, there's a line drawn about what's appropriate public behavior and kind of our private lives are, are not a part of that. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that, that's, that is a non, that's a qualitative, uh, factor in this whole discussion of, of homelessness and shelter and housing and home that I think is important to examine, but it's a difficult one to examine because it's so in, it's so deeply embedded in us that we, you know, that we just have a hard time thinking about it that way. But I, I look at it and I go, well, if an individual who is struggling economically for whatever reason is got themselves together enough that they have developed a a way to keep themselves sheltered and safe, like in a car, for example, Um, we should be leveraging that, not making it illegal. So right now, if you're sleeping in your car, that's an illegal thing to do. And so we ticket, we tow, we do all these interventions because the idea is, well, that's not okay. And there's a sense in which it's both trying to protect that individual, but it's also trying to protect us from, oh my God, there's people sleeping in, in the car down the street from me. And it's sort of like, well, wait, okay, why is that bad? Well, they're dealing drugs and stuff. Okay, so if they were in an apartment dealing drugs, I mean, there's no, the, the, the fact is, is that the illegal activity associated with people living in their cars is illegal activity. Whether that's done in a single family, I mean, there's plenty of crime that goes on in single family homes. I mean, you think of the crack houses and, and cities have to go in and do um, abatement of, you know, meth labs in, and they're in single family homes. It, it, it's a, so, but that's a big barrier to get over politically because people's notion of, I, I need to be protected from a homeless person. Sound That just sounds wrong. But I need protection from criminal activity associated with people living in their car. Well, then it becomes, a, well, yeah, you know, we, we don't need those people crapping up the neighborhood. And it's sort of like, it, it becomes a conceptual framework problem, um, which if you can break out of that, suddenly the whole conversation shifts. And then you go, well, wait a minute. If we have three or four RVs parked somewhere and people are living there, they're not outside. They're safer in that environment than they would be if they were um, sleeping in a doorway. They have a place to use the bathroom. Um, they're not they're not urinating or defecating in my doorway, right? I mean, and so I think 
um, underneath all this is, is, and I think that what's ironic about it is that I, what I bring into it is really uh, the, the Hayekian concept of spontaneous order, which is seen as a free market kind of crazy free market thing. You're talking to a landscape architect. <laughs> Let, let's, let's walk that back a second here. <laughs> so, uh, so Frederick Hayek is a, was a, is an, eco- an economist who was sort of in the Chicago school and comes out of the, I mean, even going further back to Adam Smith and to another guy named Mandeville who wrote a thing called the, um, the fable of the bees, which was about how a beehive is all this swarm of activity and it, it seems kind of random and arbitrary what each individual bee is doing, but when you put it all together, it's creating honey and creating a thing of value. And that, I, that notion is one that says human beings, when kind of left to their own devices, will solve their problems individually and collectively in innovative and unique ways all the time, you know, whether it's on a desert island or whether it's under a bridge, or whether it's building microhousing, or sending somebody to the moon. Human beings inherently have this kind of spontaneous quality about them that when they see something going wrong, they rally around and try to fix it. Or they organize themselves to um, make money at it. Or they figure out, hey, nobody is building things like this. Let's build that. And I see the use of public space for shelter and for housing is completely consistent with all with that whole concept of look let's let people solve the problem and then and of course people can do the same thing for horrible causes too i mean they can they can organize a mob to lynch someone they can organize a mob to go and 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 do horrible heinous things but but i think on balance Generally speaking, when someone falls over on the bus and it has chest pains, people kind of rally around and they call upon their collective knowledge. Well, you know, take off his shirt, his, you open up his collar and give him some air. Or, you know, they, they, they start trying to help. Mm-hmm. And I think with homelessness and this, these issues, the encampments represent that purest form of spontaneous order where people say, Let's get together and try to solve our problem. Let's form a community. Let's come up with some rules. Let's patrol it. Let's come up with some solutions that will address the issues we have right now. And our sense of that as being a criminal invasion of public space, to me, is bizarre because that's the way I think about it. I also understand that for other people, it's like, damn it, you know, people shouldn't be living under a bridge. And it's like, well, I... I get that too, but um, I think from an economic standpoint, um, I look at those solutions as solutions, mm-hmm. not as um, now they're not the best solution, maybe, but I don't know those people and I don't know their situations. For them, it might be the best solution right now. So I think uh, the response to that that we've had as a city has been unfortunate because I think people are busy and they're not sitting around thinking about this they just drive by and say that looks ugly that makes me angry it's frightening it's scary i don't know what it is but i want it to go away and politics being what it is the response of the establishment is okay we'll we'll rally to come up with 
what do we do about this? And um, I think we haven't done a very good job of that. To, to an extent, I, I really appreciate that perspective, but I also wonder if you, you differentiate between different types of public spaces. I mean, the area under the bridge, like, it's, it's not doing anything <laughs> except, ho- except holding up yep. that bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times in the public discourse, it's when homelessness begins to impinge on parks and playgrounds. Um, or it's, or it's the person in front of the house. Um, where there's the perception of uh, either someone simply because they're homeless and you, you don't know them and they're a person a new element that is fear induced or you see evidence of mental instability mm-hmm. or drug use or something like that, that, that sends up additional alarm bells. So do you differentiate at all between those different types of public spaces and how homelessness is manifested in them? Or is it, is it all kind of working? Well, if we had a, if we had a massive earthquake or some other weather event or something um, that created a bunch of people that were without shelter. I, I can imagine a scenario in which we would put up an encampment for people. The Red Cross would come in and they'd build tents and it, one lodge. It's in the city's emergency plan. Right. <laughs> and we'd put them in a park. Um, so I think all the, 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 the panic and, and freaking out about, oh my God, they're in the park, is again another sort of classist conceptual breakdown of, well, wait a minute. The park is a public space, so the way it gets utilized is determined by the people that show up there and use it. Now, there's rules, right? There's different rules for different, as you point out, under the bridge, sidewalk, the uh, the park space. Um, you know, we have we have segregated use for where you use the bathroom, the kinds of sexual activity that can occur how many clothes you can have on. I mean, and all of these things are sort of driven by social norms. And then there's also the law. Um, I I think that, you know, I don't have a problem with the use of any public space for sheltering people that are homeless, because first of all, I look at it as it's public space. So we own it in, in, in together as a community. I think that the governing boards of those are, you know, have to take into account that, Hey, we've got a baseball game to play. And there's 12 people in tents. Like, come on, that's a legitimate concern because that their expectation is that's what that space is used for. Um. So, so I think, I think those are issues that have to be hashed out. But the notion that that someone is using a part of the, the park space as shelter is not controversial. Now, what is controversial to me is when the city wants to take private space and dictate what happens in private space in the same in the same way. So to me, it's like I don't really get how what I do in, in, in the park or what a homeless person does in the park is really an, a concern of the law enforcement. To me, it's more like, well, there's some social norms and then there's some basic safety and health issues and you have to kind of balance those and i think i think we take it a step too far and i think i think the anger and frustration about the use of park space and sidewalks and whatever 
gets into that space that's hard to quantify again. It's it's like, well, you know, I know that I don't want to see people, you know, urinating on the sidewalk. Um, that's not healthy. Um, but dogs, we have dogs that go and, you know, I'll see a dog using the median strip and the guy picking it up. And I'm like, well, that happens. So, you know, I think, I think, Again, it comes down to breaking down some of those conceptual barriers and saying, what is it we're trying to accomplish? Health, safety, wellness, um, drug use, addiction, uh, mental health issues, I think are all the same, are all together in the same basket. There are people that have mental health and chemical dependency issues that are living in a single family home, (laughs) you know, and again, those things overlap all throughout society. And again, you're pointing out if I have a mental health issue and I'm chemically dependent or I have some substance abuse issue, you're going to see it if I'm homeless. If I'm working at a law firm downtown, you're probably not going to see it necessarily unless you're at the bar or you're at in my living room. So this comes down to the public-private realm and recognizing that, you know, People have mental health issues, and if they're if we're living in a city, those things are going to be far more evident to us than they would be if we were living, um, you know, in a very very rural area. So, um, to me, I, I think we have to break those down and have a, have tough conversations amongst each other. You know, I think you have to have leadership that says, "Look, tell me what you're worried about." Well, you know, okay, well, we can handle those things uh, and still allow people to do what they need to do. And, and, and again, you know, if someone wants to transition from their car into a unit, then we should figure that out. But I don't necessarily think that we're in a position to dictate to that person what you're doing is bad or wrong. It's more like how do we accommodate that situation in a way that results in something that's beneficial broadly. I want to go back to how you were talking about people who are experiencing homelessness and kind of this bifurcation of the person and the action, mm-hmm. which I think is a very useful construct. And, and what struck me about it is it was the way that I was brought up in Episcopal school and mm-hmm. in Catholic school to think about People do bad things, right? But people are not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that I know that you're a person who tries to live your faith. Like, can you talk to me about how faith informs this conversation to you? Well, I, I, I wrote this I wrote this blog post a long time ago ca- called um, "Where Would Jesus Live?" and it, and I was I was sort <laughs> not of not a manger, right? <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> and and it has often been brought up. Um, among sort of sort of progressives that are Christian, that Jesus was born to a homeless couple, essentially, that, that a refugee couple. I mean, and that the entire principle of the Christian faith is one of love your neighbor as yourself, and um, that you know, one thing that I said in that post was that cities provide a unique opportunity to to love your neighbor because your neighbors are a lot closer than they are in, you know, rural, in a rural area where the next neighbor is five miles down the road. So 
that principle, in, in, which is the only thing that Jesus really, I mean, he said a lot of things, but, but when he was asked, tell us what we're supposed to do. He said, love God with all your heart and, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty much it. And it's like, that's a pretty tall order because it means that you have to figure out what that formulation means. And then it, it, it puts you in a situation where you have to figure out what does it mean to love yourself? And then what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? And that's confusing. And it, and it, and so living in a city and living in an urban environment forces you to deal with that question all the time. How do I love the person sitting next to me on the bus when they smell bad? How do I love the person who's making noise in the apartment next door? How do I love the person who is like eating loudly in the cubicle next to me? Or, or these days who has different political beliefs than I do. Right. And, and, and how do I, how do I, right. And how do I come in? How do I, how do I love that person? And what does that even mean to love someone um, as an act of will? Not as a kind of a, a feeling, but more as a as a decision. And I think that um, for me, the 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 aspect of this, uh, in terms of the in terms of the faith thing, is um, I find that the biggest challenge ever is like how in the world do you love people? Period. I mean, it's like hard to do. Well, and most of us get stuck on the first half of that question of mm -hmm. how do you love yourself? <laughs> well, yeah. And so when I translate that into the discussion of public and private and, 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 and all of these things, it, it takes me to a, a kind of a, a deeper point of inflection where I have to say, well, ultimately, we're all in this together. We're going to make mistakes. Um, and, and what we're going to, I think what you're going to find consistently in all of these questions is there are going to be things that are really going to push your buttons and it's going to make you really upset and angry and, or afraid. And, you know, homelessness is a terrifying thing because it hits a, some real core things that human beings have around family and safety and survival and when you are confronted with uh, the manifestation of that in, in, in your face, in, a, in the public realm, it, it forces, it, it causes you to want to make it go away. And so for me, the principle I think that, that I think as a Christian, that forces me to confront is, well, that's probably a place where I need to go. You know, if I'm disturbed or, or concerned, I need to go there. And I think that we need to push ourselves to ask these questions of, is that person a homeless person or is that my neighbor? <laughs> you know, and so I had a situation where I came down one day and I saw this car with broken windows and a towel hanging down and it had a boot on it. You know, the city puts the boot on the car. And I knew right away this is an this is an individual or a family or something that's living in this car, and they just happen to be on my block. Is that person homeless or is that person my neighbor? If they're my neighbor, it's kind of like the guy that lives next door to me or the person that lives in the you know the house down the street. 
so that changes things because that suddenly makes that that situation no longer a situation where I'm going, whoa, that's a problem. I hope it gets cleaned up. And it goes the other way. I mean, it means that, you know, we're all we're all having to deal with each other in these weird ways all the time. So I think if we looked at it that way, we, we wouldn't we, it wouldn't be such this public policy problem as much as a problem of resources and like, oh, you know, so seven or eight or ten people are, are camped out in the park. Let's go down and talk to them, figure out what they need, what's going on. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm a pretty permissive person on that score. Um, I recognize that people don't like it. I recognize that there are issues with the law and with the, the, the sort of legal constructs. But I think it just comes down to a pretty simple question of, um, talking to the people, figuring out what it is they need and want, and then working it out so we can accommodate it. And I'm not really that concerned about the anxiety it creates in the surrounding community, <laughs> except to say that, well, I get it. I understand why this is disturbing, but you know, what are we going to do about it? I mean, um, so I, you know, I think I think that's probably surprising to most people because I think most people would think that a person with my perspective would be more like um, I don't know what people think, but you know, I, how do you get caricatured? I, I mean, I, I don't know. I think people are usually surprised when I wrote a, a thing in Forbes about this, and Tim Harris, who's the editor of Real Change posted the thing and he said, I can't believe this, but I agree with Roger Valdez 100% on this. And this was an article where our post where I said, you know, we need to stop freaking out about this, wade into that community, ask questions and support it as a leverage to, you know, because I think that's what, I think that's what Jesus would do. I think that's what Hayek would say. Uh, I think that's what Milton Friedman would say is he'd say, these people have figured out a solution. Um, the last thing you want to do is go in there and crack heads and start tearing it apart. Like it took them a long time to build this this solution up. Um, maybe there's something there that we can build off of. You know, maybe we need to institutionalize this on some level. Um, I worked with far in, in the farm worker housing arena in the '90s, and 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 one of the struggles that we had was. We had a situation in Eastern Washington where there were, I say we, but, but the community in general had, you know, in the cherry harvest, it's a short crop. So you had farm, you have migrant farm worker families. It's summertime. Kids are not in school. The whole family's in a car. They're coming from California, Wyoming, wherever, and they're going to come work the cherry harvest. The cherry harvest pays a certain amount to go, do, to go work it. It's a short window. They're in the Tri-Cities. They don't want to rent a hotel room that's going to consume most of what they earn. So they improvised. They camped out along the river. They had lean-tos. They had the solution that was proposed by the Department of Health and by um, the, the, the farmers were, you know, was set up military-style tents like cots and, and whatever. Um, our reaction as a community at that time was tents are not dignified. We don't want that. All that's going to do is institutionalize a halfway solution to the problem of permanent housing. 
We also felt that it was a, a racist uh, move by the locals um, that were like, you know, you're welcome to come and pick our crops, but then move on. We don't want you settling down and changing the demographics of our community. And so um, CMAR Community Health Centers, which is where I, I worked for a while, I was on the board for 18 years, um, got together a solution where we bought an old hotel, an old travel lodge, converted it, and turned it into a uh, $5 a night for a person, $10 a night for a family, um, got money from the Department of Agriculture at the federal level, so they, they subsidize it operating costs, and then got money from the trust housing trust fund to acquire and renovate the building. So now, when, and when I was there as the director of housing, we operated that facility, and what it what it did was families could come in, they could get a suite um, for ten bucks a night, they could stay there through the harvest. the The father or the mother could go and work another crop somewhere else, um, come back, and the kids could finish school in the Tri Cities. Mm. And suddenly you start to see people leveraging that into a more permanent solution. And that is what we, you know, so you finish the seventh grade instead of dropping out of it. You finish high school instead of dropping out. Now you're going to move there. You're going to live there. You're going to stay there. You get a full-time permanent job. Somebody else gets another job. Suddenly that family puts down roots. And, and that was what, I mean, that's what you want to see have happen. But, but the community there fought that. We were in court for years. They still won't call it housing. It's called a hotel. And there's an equal opportunity sign that, that usually is put on. Um, they wouldn't let this, the, us put that on the sign. And they, they required that we provide towels and soap and whatever so that it would be a hotel. because And we could not provide services there. No social services, no information about social services, because it's a hotel. It's not housing. Mm-hmm. And so, again, th- this was a, 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 you know, now those communities have transformed. I believe the Tri-Cities have lots of Latino elected officials, whether it's school board people, city council people. Yakima has elected them. And part of that has come from the work that was done on in the 90s, I think, in, in changing that balance. And a lot of it had to do with pushing back on, on housing issues um, that in this case was a little bit different. It, it was saying, we don't want encampments. We don't want people camping in the park. Mm-hmm. But that was, a, that was a pushing back on, um, it's not dignified. So it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing because Many people in those advocacy communities are saying, I don't want people living in tents and cars because what it does is it's a shortcut and it gets us away from solving the housing problem. I agree. A shortcut from what? A shortcut from making the investment in publicly subsidized housing okay. that would solve solve the problem. And, and so I guess I bring up the story of what we did in, the, the, in Eastern Washington as a way of saying, I, I agree. Saying... You can live under the bridge. Um, a lot of people would criticize that and say, well, all you're going to do is allow an undignified, unsatisfactory solution to just be the fix. 
No. It, what I'm saying is, is, is that you need to do both. You need to look at, at the situation and go, why are the families doing it? The families were doing it there in that case because it worked. They didn't want to spend the money on a hotel. And they were telling us, why would I spend half my wages that I earn in the job? It, the purpose is defeated of me coming here and working it. They banded together. They had a system. They worked it out. We looked at it and said, this is horrifying. This is not where children should be living. We leveraged that into an argument that we need the resources to build a, a interim solution that's more dignified and more and safe and healthy and isn't dependent on the farmer that is providing the job, right, and has the leverage over the farm worker. That situation worked itself out because you had advocates, you had uh, a bunch of people went down to Olympia and demanded a veto of the piece of legislation where governor vetoed it, forced everyone back to the table. So, so it's a, it requires a combination of getting in the face of the elected officials and demanding a better solution. But it also means allowing solutions that work to kind of percolate up. Per, yeah, and, and, and to be leveraged and to be taken advantage of. And I think public space is a tremendous leverage point for making those things work because it's free. I mean, you, it's public. And, and it also puts the problem in people's faces and says, you have to deal with this. And again, I think that that's living back into both my economic view and my, my view of what it is that we're called to do as a faith community, which is, damn it, we got to deal with this, you know? And, and I think, I don't think the damn it's <laughs> Jesus didn't say that. But I mean, I think, I think that, I think there's a tremendous amount of frustration on both sides of that issue within, within the advocacy community, because I think, um, the tents and the cars are sort of seen as sometimes an easy way out. And I don't think so. I think that, I think that forcing that issue pushes that into the public realm and makes people have to deal with it. You know, are you uncomfortable? Good. You know, that's where you need to be. And cities make us uncomfortable. And that's why in that post, you know, I kind of argued that if, you know, Jesus was around, he'd be in a city and he would be doing things in a city in an urban environment because that's where all the people are. And that's where the most friction is between class, race, culture, political views. Um, you know, that's where the that's where the action is. Um, so. It seems like when we when we put it in people's face, though, I'm, one reaction is let's let's deal with it. But I think what we've seen here is the other reaction is get rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, Clean it up. Diffuse it. The other piece of, of getting it in your face is when I think about the parks, particularly around Seattle, but I think this is true in a lot of American communities, is there's this phrase of the community park, right? And the parks represent the gathering place for the community that surrounds them. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, oftentimes that community is homogenized mm -hmm. because of some of the mechanisms that you talked about before. Um, so, so I just want to talk about that role of that type of a public space in terms of the greater community, not just kind of this, this shared 
homogenized block of people who bought in in a place. Yeah, I mean, I mean, part of what you know, I, I mean, I, I love the work of the Downtown Seattle Association, for example, um, and I think what they've done at Westlake in particular, I, I, that that public space, I think, is in in my view improved over time, and I think it's been activated in a way that is important. Um, some of the language that I think I heard a few years back about that sounded to me kind of like, well, there's too many of those people in the park. And it's kind of like, well, those people... You mean businessmen? <laughs> people, <laughs> lawyers. Um, it, it, it was kind of like, we all kind of know what that means, you know, like there, there's too many of, of too many vagrants or too many homeless people in the park. Um, are they drug dealers? What, what's going on? How, how is public space being used for criminal activity? Um, it happens, but, it, but that happens in private space too. And, and some of the more left leaning people would say the biggest crimes are committed in corporate boardrooms. Right. I mean, so, you know, forget about the $5 drug transaction in the park. Um, I, I do think there's a tendency to, 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 to say certain individuals can use public space and others, other individuals can't by virtue of what they look like, how much money they make, who they are. And I'm not sure if that's where you were going with that question, but to me, um, I think, you know, that plays a real uh, serious role. If I went in and laid down in City Hall on the couches where they, they, they have, uh, they sort of have these little couches and a fireplace right by Bertha Knight Landis. If I went in and laid down and was on my phone and on my computer, I don't think I'd get bothered by security. Um, I saw a woman in there, um, African-American woman sitting down and she got chased out of there by security. And I, I, I didn't get a chance to go talk to the security people about it. And I sort of regret that, but I've seen that, you know, where, where it's sort of like, it's really easy for a lot of us who have privilege to access public space. And I, I can guarantee you based on the way you dress or the sweat, the way you smell or the way you look, if you change that, if you took the same individual and, and put them in costume, the reaction would be, and we know this, it would be completely different. And so I think that to me is at the heart of this issue is, um, at least in the city and with this, what we're dealing with in particular, is it all depends on where you come from. It all depends on how you look at that individual. Um, a scraggly looking guy that, you know, has got holes in his shoes, comes in and sits down in some public space in, in a in a private building, they're going to get chased off. I do it? Probably not. So it, 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 a lot, again, a lot of this is a social construct. Back to the farm worker example. You know, I'm sure that that outraged a lot of uh, uh, predominantly white people that were uh, sort of people that lived in that community. But, um, you know, I, I also think that it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, um, those people are, they like it. They want to camp out. That's what they're used to. So, because we heard that at the time, it was sort of like, they don't have a problem with it. They're, they're happy. 
that's how they do it. That's how they live their lives. And so it's sort of, I think there is a lot of privilege that goes into the use of public space that needs to be examined. And I think that I would have a lot of common cause with people that I typically are probably ideologically and politically opposed to in terms of talking about the way privilege plays into the use of public space and how that poisons the solutions to the problem. You've also looked at both Utah and I think Massachusetts mm-hmm. as examples. What are, what are some lessons of what they're doing right? So I think in both cases, um, I, what, what they both have done, in particular in Utah, is it all came down to a definition of a problem. And the way that they, they kind of looked at it is you have, they kind of pushed the word homeless aside for a minute and looked at utilization of shelter and other services. And they, 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 DESC did this with chronic public inebriate use of emergency rooms too. And you sort of look at it like, well, if a person is in a, is in a shelter setting 365 nights of the year, sort of that's one threshold. So every night they're in a shelter. And then they looked at, okay, 200, 100. And they kind of came up with this survey, a comprehensive survey of the number of people that are chronically, consistently, month after month, year you know, year after year, in a shelter setting, then they that number became much more manageable compared to the overall number of people sleeping outside. So you have that measure of visual, you know, going into the well and pulling up data on one night of the year that says, boom, this is who this is who we found out and about. And then they kind of tried to they tried to winnow that down and it became a case management thing of when you winnowed it down to the the users of this of the shelter system that were really in that system a lot, uh, it was a much more manageable number. And then they just kind of they kind of tackled those the, those individuals with comprehensive services and tried to move them along the continuum. Where do you want to live? Do you want a unit? Um, what are your challenges? Do you have issues with medication? Do you have issues with uh, addiction? Do you have issues with um, whatever? And because they kind of tackled it that way and case managed the people extensively, they were able to kind of move those people on the continuum from shelters into permanent solutions and basically eliminate a big part of the problem. Now, do they still have homeless people? Yeah, because there's still people kind of that are not in the shelter system or they're moving in and out of homelessness part of the year, part of the month, part of the week. Um, and they're still trying to do that, but but they, but they kind of reduced that part of the problem. Um, what Massachusetts did was they created a they, they quantified the use of the system, the shelter system, and of the emergency systems that were in place. And they kind of came up with a dollar figure for that. And they said, well, if we could save the local jurisdiction the money of, of reducing the utilization of those systems and capture that value by, by getting these people permanent housing, then we could use the value of the savings from the system, the use of the system, to pay for the housing. So they got private investors to kind of front fund the, the housing solution and then would do the payback of those private investors from 
the savings to, from the public system. Um, they call them social investment bonds, or uh, there's another name for it. But you know, these are financing solutions that, again, if you get people that are quantitatively driven in the finance community, they say, well, like you know, downtown emergency service center created housing for for people that um, were called CPIs, chronic public inebriates. And they created it based on emergency room data. And they said, like, okay, these are the people we know are in the emergency room every night of the year, 200 nights of the year. And they just went to that person and said, we're going to, do you want to go into this program? You don't have to quit drinking. You don't have to do anything different. Here's the keys. You, you go in there. Here's some basic rules. And they basically case manage those people extensively. And you saw the utilization rates of emergency room drop. And that was an, a value to the public, um, you know, uh, resource because we didn't have to spend that money anymore. So the idea, I think, in Massachusetts and um, and in Utah was to find the problem more, you know, come up with a definition, quantify it, and then extensive, you know, throw everything you have at those individuals, and move them along the continuum, and get them beachhead and get. Get them so that they're they can go up and out and into the into move beyond it, and recognize you're always going to have some other problems out there that you got to solve either with the temporary solutions or interim solutions or, you know, Bill Curlin Hackett. I don't know if you talked to him at the Interfaith Task Force on Homelessness, but, uh, you know, part of what they do is you know I have a three hundred dollar problem which is parking tickets. Okay. We could solve that, um, and and if you put the boot on the car, right? Person's in a car, and that's their home. That's where they're living, and we go and we put a boot on it because of unpaid parking tickets. And if the person could pay to get the boot off, they wouldn't be living in their car. So now the car gets towed. They don't. If they could get their car out of the impound lot, they wouldn't be in the car in the first place. The car gets lost. They're now on the street, living in the jungle. So we can, we can, if we're thoughtful, we can do the Utah, the Massachusetts program really extensively. Case manage. You're always going to have people living in their vehicles. But if you're smart about it and you have a criteria and your parking enforcement people have a thing they can call and go, Bill. Um, I think we got one over here and blah, 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 address. Those people go out. They talk to that person. They go, what's the problem? Well, parking tickets and, you know, whatever it is. In the case of the person I described, they lost their, they, they either lost their keys or the keys were broken and they couldn't move the car. Hmm. So they had to, they, they found a couple hundred bucks to get somebody to come out and fix that problem. They got a key for the car. Person started it up. They took the boot off. The person moved on. Who knows where that person is now? But we know at that moment because of the intervention. Because I called Bill, and Bill showed up and talked to that human being and talked to the city. That person did not lose their home. And so, if we look at it that way, and we had just a simple system of communication. Uh, and the the, the the housing first idea of, of kind of grabbing the people that are we know are out there, um, 
I, you can solve it. You got parking enforcement people, right? They're humans. They can look at things. They can they can make decisions. We're not. We haven't. We haven't put that in an algorithm yet. <laughs> and and it's just sort of like you know, you can you can you can sort of deal with it. But you have to have leadership from the top that empowers those individuals to make those calls and then properly resource the, the, interven- the intervention to go in and solve it. Is that person going to be homeless in six weeks? Maybe. Um, is that person going to end up doing something else that's going to get them into more trouble? Maybe. But you try to engage those individuals so that they're not in the jungle, which is exactly what they're trying to get rid of. So. Front-end solution, you, you do prevention, you, you dogpile the problem with as many resources as possible, and then you provide sort of common-sense solutions for the ongoing issue, which, which involves taking a breath and not being scandalized by the fact that there's a tent in the park. You know, you kind of say, all right, we can live with that for a while. Let's go figure out what's going on. RVs parked down the road, what's happening? I mean, if the immediate reaction is, clean it up, get rid of it, go send in the police, well, then you're, you're never going to get ahead of it. Um, so. And what I hear you saying is too often we pick up the phone and dial those three numbers, mm-hmm. the 911, and we'd perhaps be better served by going over and having a conversation. And that's hard, and that's hard to do. Um, and that's hard to do because... I have to admit, I didn't engage those individuals in that car. I called Bill because I knew Bill. And I knew that this was a specialty of his and something that he works on. And it was like, but it, but I, yeah. And, and I could have just walked by and said, well, I wonder what's going to happen there. Um, but collaboratively, you know, Bill and I don't agree on everything. Um, but we agree on this. And it's sort of like, you know, we can solve it. You know, we can solve most of these problems. Now, is there criminal activity going on in, in the encampments? Yeah. But there's criminal activity going on in the apartment across the street. You know, I don't, you know, criminal activity is criminal activity. Living is living. And the two things overlap sometimes, but they're not always um, going to be the same thing. Uh, so, and, and I make the same speech when it comes to, the greedy development argument. You know, a guy is building a fourplex. You know that that guy is feeding his family, sending his kids to school, clothing his family, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, he almost went out of business during the downturn. You know, he's a younger guy that was living in his mom's basement while he built his business. Um, he does payroll. He worries about whether or not he's going to have enough money to make his payment on on the property that he's building. I mean, he stands in line with you at the coffee shop, you know, he's coaching his kids softball team or soccer team or whatever. He's not a greedy developer. He's just a guy making a living. Right. So it's the same. All of this goes back the other way too, where guys on the other side of the aisle are really quick with, you know, we need to do something about all these greedy developers, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's the same step back for a second. What's really going on here? Wait a minute. There's a bunch of guys who are majority Mexican immigrants that are doing the framing on that building. They're getting paid. And the guy that's hauling the dirt off there, he's getting paid. And he's feeding his family. And so 
something's going on here that that we need to step back and look at that and say that construction project isn't just a construction project it's also jobs for real people with hard hats and high school diplomas that are earning $25 an hour is that a good thing we want to keep that going or we want to shut that down or you know it's just it, it all goes back to that principle of hold on a second think for a minute and if i can get people to think like that about development <laughs> you know um i think we would we would also solve the problem too so you know it's not to make it such a simple thing but a lot of this is conceptual framework stuff it's things that go on just behind the frontal cortex of the brain that are reflexive and not kind of analytical and and uh, it's an old reptilian brain yeah it, it, it's a it's a part of the brain that's important that we need you know but it but it also it's sort of like there's this other part of the brain that we have where it's the kind of like huh let me stop and think about that for a minute I, you know and our job I think in the advocacy community across the board and I think in the faith community um, is to look for those moments of like oh, wait a minute, I didn't think of it that way. And I think if we can do that with this issue of public space and, and house, housing and homelessness, where we can go, wait a minute, everybody needs a place to stay out of the rain, have some shelter, da, da, da. Then it, it, it doesn't, you don't have all that baggage associated with it. And if a guy wants to drink a beer in the park, like, wow, why is that a problem? Like, why? I don't get it. Like, I don't understand why that's a problem. Um, if a guy wants to camp with his girlfriend and their dog, uh, you know, in a part of the park where nobody's using that part, you can still play baseball there. And I, big deal. Like, go, you know, I, like, it just, it changes everything. And, and I think then your public policy becomes about making sure those individuals are have a place to go to the bathroom that, that, that you communicate with them if going and taking away their tent and all their possessions uh, that's not going to make it better um, takes it takes it out of your face but it doesn't it doesn't solve the problem so um, anyway th this is a place where we could all work together on this and I, it's unfortunate that we have so many divisions within the community on housing that conspire to keep us and frankly politicians who play on those divisions and fears on both sides i mean not just the the, the lefties who want to bash development and say that's the source of homelessness but it's also the the you know the the conservative you know radio people that get on and say clean this problem up you know so it's it, somewhere in the, in the in the reality part of that is Wait a minute, let's solve this problem. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIG, SVR, and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website 
at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. <laughs>